This is an ABC podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Tegan will be back with us next week. Today, the growing realisation that the pandemic, almost paradoxically, presents opportunities to improve the health of all Australians. Whether medicine, ca- medicinal cannabis is all it's cracked up to be as a pain reliever, whether antidepressants are all they're cracked up to be in your elderly relatives with dementia, and paracetamol. You've probably got a packet of paracetamol in the bathroom cupboard or carry it with you. It's a funny drug because no one's quite sure how it works. And like many painkillers, analgesics, the evidence about how effective it is, is mixed. That's why an Australian research group, which has previously shown and talked about it on the health report, that paracetamol is pretty ineffective when it comes to low back pain. But the group has cast its net further to see what evidence exists for other kinds of pain. The lead author of the paper, recently published in the Medical Journal of Australia, is Dr. Christina Abdul-Shahid. Welcome to the health report, Christina. Thank you, Norman. What did you do in this study? Why did we do this study? No, no, what did you do? What did we do in this study? So we examined the evidence for the effectiveness of paracetamol compared with placebo for 44 different pain conditions. And basically what we found was that for four conditions, there is compelling evidence to suggest it's more effective than placebo. Uh, For one condition, which is acute low back pain, there's compelling evidence it doesn't work better than placebo. And uh, remarkably, for the remaining 39 conditions, there is question marks as to whether or not the medicine uh, does work. So what are the four conditions where it works? So the four conditions vary quite markedly. So we observed that uh, paracetamol is efficacious in tension headache, perineal pain following childbirth, uh, he, nip, um, knee and hip osteoarthritis and also craniotomy, which is the removal of part of the skull. Well, while you might feel in a bad headache that you've had a craniotomy, that's not a common one. Why, but why should you get this variation between types of pain? I mean, if one orthopaedic condition, knee and hip osteoarthritis works, why not low back pain? Is it the quality of the research or do you think it's the Panadol? It's a good question and basically we know that uh, different pain responds uh, differently to certain treatments. We also know know that pain behaves in very different ways. So even with musculoskeletal pain in general, uh, when it's localised, um, it might be different, you know, one one part of the body to the other, it might respond differently to pain medicines. We're still sort of understanding how different uh, pain medicines work across the different pain conditions and we're mapping that out. But it's an interesting question and um, definitely worth investigating further. Of course, it's a very subjective thing to measure. Absolutely. Pain is very subjective in general and different people have different pain thresholds. So some people will take medicine when they are in extreme pain, for instance, and other people will take the medicine when they're feeling uh, very slight pain. But what, what is extreme and what is slight to one person um, might vary to the, to the next. So that's something we have to appreciate as clinicians and researchers uh, and also their response to um, and how they report improvements to pain varies. So it is a very subjective uh, outcome. Mixed comparing studies hard. 
Yeah, and and what we did, which was advantageous in our study, is that um, looking at the studies, most of them used a common instrument. So they looked at um, pain, usually on a zero to ten point pain scale. So it's a continuous outcome measure. Well, ten is um, the worst pain you've ever had in your life. That's correct, and zero is no pain at all. And it, when the studies used a different continuous measure, what we did is we standardised it all so that we could uh, look, across, uh, look at the pain uh, responses uniformly and make comparisons across the different pain conditions. And they, interestingly, they mostly studied single doses of paracetamol rather than multiple. I mean, most people, if they get a headache or they've got pain, they'll have it you know, every six hours for at least a day or so. Yeah, that's the surprising finding we found from this review as well. So you're right, um, most people who do take paracetamol will often take a short course over a couple of days. And what we found was a lot of the evidence actually evaluated a single dose, which uh, doesn't reflect typical use of the pain medicine. And it tells us very little about the regular use of paracetamol for pain control. And also, it uh, doesn't tell us much about the use of paracetamol for a lot of chronic pain conditions out there. What about the risks? So the risks are when, well, if paracetamol is taken within the recommended limits, the risks are generally pretty small and that's, that's widely accepted. However, what a lot of people may not realise is that in overdose, even if the overdose is only very slight, paracetamol can quickly become one of those, the most dangerous drugs. Because uh, it damages the liver. It damages the liver and even as little as two tablets in excess of the maximum recommended um, has resulted in liver damage, uh, liver, liver failure. And it's something that can easily happen when people get confused about um, the different formulations that are out there. So, for example, the long-acting preparation, uh, which is the osteo, the, the maximum for those is six a day, not eight like your standard paracetamol tablets. And so two tablets in excess um, of, you know, the, the two extra tablets of the osteo can be potentially quite harmful. So, um, so what are we to do with this information in our box of paracetamol in the bathroom cabinet? Yeah, so what basically our study showed that there's a lot of uncertainty around the, the effectiveness of the medicine and there's a couple of options that people, consumers have and one of them is to, you know, where there is uncertainty to consider using the medicine and see if it helps. The other option is to see if there is a better uh, known alternative and if there is, um, to consider using that first. And the third option, of course, is not to take the medicine and just see how their pain goes. So there are options out there for people. It's just important um, for them, to, if they are going to consider to use paracetamol, that they use it within the recommended limits and to be aware which formulation they're using. Christina, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Norman. Dr. Christina Abdul-Shahid is in the School of Public Health at the University of Sydney. Let's stay with pain relief because there's been a lot of talk over the last few, past few years about the analgesic properties of medicinal cannabis, particularly cannabidiol, one of the two main active components of the plant. However, a trial of cannabidiol in acute low back pain carried out in the emergency department at the Austin Hospital in Melbourne has been disappointing. It was no more effective than a placebo. One of the authors of the accompanying commentary in the Medical Journal of Australia was Dr Chris Hayes, who runs the Hunter Integrated Pain Service at the John Hunter Hospital in Newcastle. Welcome to the Health Report, Chris. Norman, thank you for the invitation to the program. 
So what? Did, so this was just a straightforward randomised trial. People came in with a really bad back to the the emergency department at the Austin. They gave the treatments that they would normally give to, to control pain, and then on top, they either gave cannabidiol or a placebo. Is that what happened? That's right. Paracetamol and ibuprofen as a first pass. Then they gave the trial medication, which could have either been a cannabidiol or placebo, as you say, and there was the option of some rescue oxycodone as well. That's an opioid. Yes. And just no effect? And no effect or no different to the placebo effect, which uh, is interesting. This was a very well-designed study. Uh, quite rigorously done, all the nice double-blinding techniques and so forth. And so in contrast to other less well-designed studies, I think. So we need to listen carefully to the results of this one. So you think it was a fair test? I feel it was a fair test. So yes. having listened to the previous interview where you saw that variation, well, you, well, you're a pain specialist, so you're no, you're no stranger to paracetamol and ibuprofen and all these other pain relievers. Um, how generalizable do you think this is across other pain types, acute pain types with cannabidiol? Difficult to generalize, but I think, uh, yeah, we don't know the answer to that question. Uh, so I think we do need to look at different types of acute pain, different models. They're not all the same. And I, I guess also I work mainly in the longer-term pain. And so my uh, sense is to be cautious about extrapolating, particularly to chronic pain as well. So is there Most, chronic pain is the you know, is where you earn your money, so to speak. Um, yes, exactly. Is there mm-hmm. any evidence that cannabidiol, and people have been touting cannabidiol, palliative care, chronic non-cancer pain, even in cancer pain. Is there any evidence at all in chronic pain? None yet, Uh, no. There have been a number of trials done, not that many, and they have all drawn something of a blank. Uh, So, no. In fact, the only evidence that it really works is in the paediatric epilepsy group, the rare forms of paediatric epilepsy. Hence, that's what it's licensed for in Australia by the Therapeutic Goods Administration. But has the Therapeutic Goods Administration allowed it to be effectively over-the-counter in a a pharmacy? Yes, this is curious, and this is what my co-author and I were calling into question in our editorial, uh, a time to reset expectations, because it is curious to us that TGA have uh, down-scheduled it from requiring a medical prescription, to over-the-counter availability in the pharmacy when there's really no evidence to say that it works other than in paediatric epilepsy, which is a complex condition, obviously, where I think it would be best prescribed by the doctor along with the multiple other anti-epileptic medications that that child may be taking. Well, I mean, there's there's lots of stuff that the TGA kind of turns a blind eye to that, that's in the pharmacy that probably has no effect at all, you know, shelves and shelves of vitamins and supplements. Um, is this just one of those that they're saying, well, it doesn't work very well, but it doesn't do much harm, or does it do any harm? Perhaps. I mean, this is the question that we were debating a little in the editorial. Certainly, it seems to be less harmful than the other main cannabidiol, the TH, sorry, the other main cannabinoid, uh, THC, so it's less likely to get people intoxicated or stoned. It seems less likely to have that 
psychosis, uh, trigger to schizophrenia, but particularly there seemed to be potential problems with drug interactions is one of the angles that we were concerned about. So someone wandering in off the street to talk to a pharmacist uh, and seek availability of this may well be on a, a group of other medications that can be interfered with considerably Such and as? to cause harm. Uh, well, it could be opioid medication would be one thing, could be anti-epileptic medication, uh, could be any psychoactive drugs. All of these potentially complex interactions have been not particularly well studied. So, uh, so, so is, there are concerns, but not well documented. So is this um, you know, a market in search for, is this a drug in search for a market? You've got all these producers producing it and <laughs> trying to find a place for it. Yes, I think that is that is true. And because there are cannabinoid receptors uh, at multiple sites throughout the body, I guess that goes to that point. And cannabidiol acts at a whole multitude of receptors. It has anti-inflammatory and immune-modulating effects and so forth. And yes, it really is in search of an application. Well, let's hope they find out one, find out one day that there is one. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Pleasure. Thank you. Dr. Chris Hayes, who is director of the Hunter Integrated Pain Service at the John Hunter Hospital in Newcastle. This is RN's Health Report with me, Norman Swan. Now, here's a question for you. If you were to take an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander person with the same income, education and lifestyle as a non-Indigenous Australian... To what extent would the differences in illness and premature death rates between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Australians be eliminated? You probably think a lot. But the answer is that equality in those factors only reduces the gap by a third. So what would reduce the health and life expectancy disparity between Australian First Nations people and the rest of the population? A supplement in today's Medical Journal of Australia looks at Australians' health in 2030 and our path to better health for all. One of the chapters deals with the, this challenge facing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities and argues that the factor that could radically reduce this disparity is culture. Dr Summer May Finlay of the University of Wollongong is the lead author. Welcome to the Health Report, Summer. Thank you. Nice to, have, nice to be here. So culture is a big... <laughs> It's a big word, isn't it? I mean, what are the elements of culture that the evidence suggests determine health and well-being? Oh, look, culture is definitely a big word. And when we're talking about culture, we're talking about Aboriginal ways of doing, being and knowing. So it's the way that we think about the world, the way that we interpret the world. Um, and again, it is often the things that are unseen. So we may speak English, we may dress like everybody else, but it's the way we behave and think about the world. And it's also the way we connect to our country. So I'm a Yorta Yorta woman. My country, I didn't grow up on my country, which is down on the, um, the, the, the Murray River, down near Echuca. But it's also um, our kinship structures, Aboriginal languages, our cultural expression, and also self-determination and leadership. So it's really just the way we move through the world. And you talk about continuity as well. Yeah, so, I mean, as an Aboriginal woman, often people don't see what it means to be an Aboriginal woman, and, and it goes for, for most of us. But it's the way I was raised by my mum, who's an Aboriginal woman, and, and her mum as well. And it's that continuity and connections that we've had to our culture since time immemorial that actually is what lives and breathes on in us and is often not very well understood by the mainstream health sector. Now, the question I asked 
you know, in my introduction to you, we're, we're really typical what are called socioeconomic determinants, education, income, how, how good your housing is, where you live and all that sort of thing. Um, this is very different from that. What evidence base is there that th these cultural elements that you're talking about can determine how long you live, whether you get heart disease well, early, that sort of thing? So it really um, is something that is an emerging space. Uh, talking about culture particularly started in Canada with Michael Chandler in the 1990s. And we've got an emerging evidence base here in Australia when you're talking about Western evidence. When it comes from an Aboriginal point of view, when you look at the way that the Aboriginal community controlled health sector has had such great achievements at actually improving the health and wellbeing of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people since they were established in the 1970s, that's testament to how culture, which is what is the core centre of the Aboriginal community controlled health sector, uh, that culture really plays a role. So we have Western evidence from a research point of view that's emerging through the studies like the Microwire study, which Ray Lovett leads from the ANU. Um, but there is also obviously that practice evidence, which is established through the Aboriginal community controlled health sector. You used the word control and um, we've covered this a lot on the health report uh, over the years, is that if you look at the Whitehall study in London, which was a study of civil servants, as a, you, you know this well, there's a health inequity gradient between the people who are at the bottom of the employment ladder to the people who run the department. And control is part of this and chronic stress that occurs when you're not in control of your life in the, in the middle. And that's the, 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 the kind of secret element here. Is this about control and chronic stress when you don't feel um, that things are culturally appropriate? It is certainly a part of it. So when we're looking at an individual point of view, that's certainly an element of it. But when we're talking about control from an Aboriginal community control point of view, we're actually looking at a collective approach to health rather than just an individual approach to health. So when we're thinking um, about the Aboriginal definition of health, it actually is thinking about the whole person in their community. So looking at how they're situated, how their kinship structures um, are, how well well-rounded their community is and how, how healthy their community is. So it's not just taking that really individualistic approach, it's looking at it from a whole of person, including their community. So control, I think, is a slightly different concept within an Aboriginal setting. It's more community-based. So yeah. what, do, what do we know at this point Apart from community control, well, I'll use the word community control to use your terms. You know, we've got community controlled health services and, and many other elements of healthy Aboriginal communities. What, needs, what are the elements of implementation here to actually uh, implement this sort of cultural approach to um, improve the cultural determinants of health? That's actually the key question because we've actually had culture be the centre of a number of policies since 1989. And again, your listeners may, may not be aware, but we have over 140 Aboriginal community controlled health services around the country and they're run by and for Aboriginal people. And that's the key element that's missing. Often in mainstream health settings or when we're talking about policy that's being developed at, say, a PHN level or the state level or Commonwealth level, they're done by non-Aboriginal people who don't know our communities and our culture. What we actually need is Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people leading the way in this space, 
like we've got with the Coalition of Peaks around the Closing the Gap framework. So the new Closing the Gap framework has strong Indigenous leadership right at the top. And that kind of needs to be emulated through our entire health system if we're to take a true cultural determinants of health approach. So and this needs to be done in collaboration with the things you were talking about before with the Whitehall study in terms of the social determinants. When we're thinking about housing, everybody needs to have a house, right? And that then helps people have stable um, education, employment, etc. But we need to be thinking about how to, to build that house in a way that meets the needs of our Aboriginal communities. Our families are bigger, more mobile, etc. And that's kind of the cultural approach is everyone needs a house, but the house might look different for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. So you've got to be open to that, to, to the community determining its own destiny. Absolutely. I mean, our communities. Sorry, go on. Sorry. Our communities know our communities the best. We have strong leadership in all of our communities. They may not be on the radio like I am with you now, but I can tell you they're out there every day working in our communities. And all they need is someone to go out and ask them what they need. And you're actually going to have better solutions than what we have now. It's interesting with COVID, in many ways, that's what the Commonwealth did. It just got out of the way and allowed this group of peaks to get on with it and just run it themselves? I wouldn't say they got out of the way. I'd just say they were slower than the Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Sector. (laughs) The health sector, like, I I say that without actually, I mean, I know it sounds really tongue-in-cheek, but it actually is what happened. So our services started gearing up for COVID as early as February and started putting out material like health promotion materials and pandemic responses. There was a pandemic response by the Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Service, which is the New South Wales state body at the AHNMRC as early as early as March. So our services were recognising the needs in their community, geared up really early and actually just went out there. So and in terms of COVID, what we've actually seen is about 0.6% of the COVID cases have been Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander when we're 3% of the population. So we have had a huge success within our communities at making sure that we're protecting some of those vulnerable people in Australia. So let's hope those lessons are learnt for the future. Absolutely. And if we could actually make sure that Aboriginal Community Controlled Health Services and other Aboriginal organisations are appropriately resourced to meet the needs of their communities and also trusted to be able to deliver to those communities, because as I said, they know their communities best, we will continue to see good results. Summer, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Bye. Dr Summer May Finlay is at the University of Wollongong. Unfortunately, many of you will have been touched by dementia in your family or loved ones. It's a cruel condition made worse by problems such as depression on top, which can go unrecognised and wrongly treated. A Canadian review of the evidence on the treatment of depression in people with dementia has found that non-drug treatments are often better than medications. Jennifer Watt is a geriatrician and researcher at the University of Toronto. There's two ways to measure or talk about depression in people with dementia. Some people with dementia can have symptoms of depression without meeting the criteria for having a major depressive disorder. And is that because they're not able to answer the questions that are normally asked? You know, are you not getting joy out of life and being able to motivate yourself to do stuff, that sort of thing? That's a really great question about how we diagnose depression in people with dementia because we look for different symptoms 
in people with dementia that we might not commonly see in younger people, but are in fact very common in older adults. They might not endorse feeling sad or depressed in the traditional sense of the word, but we might notice other changes, like they eat less, their appetite is not as good, their energy is lower, they're moving slower. So they might be subtle and people say, oh, well, they're getting older and they're just shuffling around, but in fact, it's depression. Exactly. And so it really takes a caregiver who knows the person well to be able to identify these symptoms sometimes. Does it ever go the opposite way where they're angrier and more aggressive? Yes, it can. Their feelings of sadness are misinterpreted. Someone sees it as they're being, you know, agitated or aggressive or they're trying to push people away, for example. You know, someone's trying to help them and they're trying to shove them away. So it gets labeled as, oh, that person's being physically aggressive because they're trying to shoo me away. But it's actually that they're feeling very low and they just want to be left alone. Yeah, don't bother me. This interview is about treatments. So what I'm assuming from what you're saying is that sometimes you've got to start treatment for depression on a guesstimate. That's not an entirely incorrect statement. And one of the problems with people, especially as their dementia becomes more severe, is that they can't always speak for themselves and for what they would want and what their preferences are, which was really one of the major reasons that I wanted to undertake this study to help us because there are certainly people for whom if they have a very serious major depressive disorder, medication is warranted. But sometimes there are actually underlying reasons driving a person's behavior. Maybe they are lonely and so would really benefit from having social interaction or doing an activity that they really enjoy. And that was really what we tried to find and what we did show in our study. And what you did was you reviewed the evidence such as it was for both drug and non-drug treatments. And of course, with older people with dementia, the prescription pad is often the first response because it's the easiest response. And sometimes that's the wrong response. So just tell us what you found about the relative effectiveness of various treatments for depression in people with dementia. As you said, we did a very large review of the literature. In fact, we ended up including 256 studies. And what we found is that these non-drug treatments like reminiscence therapy or cognitive stimulation or exercise are as or more effective than medications for reducing these symptoms of depression in people with dementia. What's reminiscence therapy? What it can often mean is actually just sitting with the person who has dementia and helping them to recall times in their life or moments in their life where certain things even or people or animals really made them happier in earlier times. Or it could alternatively be having pictures or having a tape recording, you know, familiar voices or just anything that sort of brings back those earlier happy memories. And what about things like occupational therapy, animal therapy, having dogs around, do they make a difference? Yes, they do. Um, and we were really happy to see that because certainly anecdotally, based on my personal and professional experiences with older adults and people who have dementia, animal therapy works wonders with regards to occupational therapy and multidisciplinary care. What that really shows us is that there are things that are happening in a person's environment or to do with our independence and being able to do all of our daily activities by ourselves, you know, not needing anybody's help. And so, for example, occupational therapists can help us to be as independent and safe as we can be. It's just sort of supporting that idea that there is meaning sometimes and things we can do before medications to help people 
relieve their symptoms of depression. And you found that drugs weren't any more effective than just usual care. Exactly. There was one combination that involved cognitive stimulation and a medication that we would use for treating the symptoms of like memory loss in dementia. That combination together seemed to work, but no drug on its own was any better than usual care. And did setting matter? In other words, whether they were at home? I mean, group therapy is probably easier if you're in a residential aged care. Some therapies, as you're saying, if you're in residential aged care, you can gather, or at least before COVID-19, you could gather together in a group and do some of these activities and have that social interaction and that engagement that people really need. However, activities like cognitive stimulation could also be community-based, although they're not as readily available. But since we know it works so well for symptoms of depression, but we also know that it can help with those other symptoms like memory loss. And I think that really supports a wider use of this type of intervention in the community and in residential care settings. Jennifer Watt is a geriatrician and researcher at the University of Toronto. I'm Norman Swan. This has been The Health Report. I'll see you next week. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.